to the Science in the City podcast, your gateway to the New York Academy of Sciences. I'm your host, Tamara Johnson. You, Jeff, is good. Touchdown yeah. confirmed. We're safe. Yeah. Those were the sounds of celebration at NASA headquarters at the Jet Propulsion Lab in Pasadena, California, as Earth received the first signals from the Curiosity rover from its landing spot on Mars. Curiosity's landing was daunting, to say the least, employing landing rockets, parachute, and a hovering sky crane to manage the deceleration from 13,000 miles per hour to rest on the surface of our planetary neighbor. What's more, the Curiosity had to do this all by itself, unassisted by humans due to the 14 minutes it takes communication signals to travel between Earth and Mars. By the time humans could receive data, good or bad, the robot would already have been on the surface of Mars for almost a quarter of an hour, or not. Of the 17 landers sent to Mars before Curiosity, only seven of them made it. So the waiting interval was intense, and the jubilation that erupted when Curiosity's safe touchdown was confirmed at 1.32 in the morning on August 6th was well-earned. In New York, a crowd gathered in Times Square to await the results, and at an engineering workshop in Brooklyn, roboticist Dustin Roberts watched the news with a special interest. See, Dustin had made one of the most important components on the rover, and she was waiting to find out if her work would survive to do its job on Mars. Here's Dustin. Uh, The Mars Science Laboratory is the big brother of the exploration rovers that are up there now with Spirit Opportunity, so now it's called Curiosity, right? the size of a Mini Cooper, and um, the part I had to do with it was in the sample manipulation system, which is a 11-inch diameter by 6-inch tall um, carousel, basically, for dirt <laughs> that's inside the belly of the rover. So the uh, coring tools on the end of the arm will go and grab some uh, rock samples and then dump it into a funnel that comes into our instrument and then um, populates one of the 80 cups on this carousel and that spins it around to different science instruments and pushes it up to make a seal. And then the science um, ovens basically can bake it and at really, really, really high temperatures and see what comes out of it. So even though you can't see it from the outside, so it's not as glamorous in the pictures, it's really in the critical path for about 90% of the science that will get done on any of the samples I collect. So it's pretty exciting to see it land. We're actually here at 1.30 in the morning watching it land on that Sunday night. We had the projector screen down and uh, a bunch of other people, and we're all like, yeah. <laughs> I was thinking so. that, how does it feel to know that you made something that's doing that? It's awesome, but it's also it was also a little anticlimactic because it was supposed to launch in 2009, and then it got pushed to 2012. It was supposed to launch in 2010, and it got pushed to 2012. So I haven't worked on it since, like, late 2008 <laughs> and then five years later oh yeah I remember that thing that happened it's going up there now oh great it didn't crash all right back to work <laughs> non-earth conditions have a big and difficult to predict impact on the function of the rover's design but engineers now have the benefit of learning from past missions we have to take into account things like dust is not going to settle as fast or something so you have to make sure um, like the the mars exploration rovers up there now had solar panels on them for power and they get covered with dust a lot because the atmosphere is so thin uh, it doesn't get blown off very easily 
So the Mars Science Laboratory isn't powered by solar panels now. It's powered by an RTG, it's a radioactive thermoelectric generator that is kind of like can give you a small amount of power almost forever, but it's just never a lot of power at once. But it doesn't rely on solar power at all or relies on radioactive decay of plutonium. It's a pretty intense um, power supply, but so that was a lesson learned. We don't have to worry about solar panels and dust storms if we have our own power supply. It doesn't rely on the sun. And then all the components we put into the robotic system have to be flight qualified. So if something has flown before um, a sensor or a camera or something, it's really much easier to use that same one again because we know it worked. Um, if you're trying to put a new thing up there, then you have to go through a large um, and lengthy and complicated process of qualifying that component to fly. You know, there's vibration testing and it has to be baked in an oven and then frozen and then um, all kinds of stuff has to go through. It's basically just as extreme um, engineering as you can get because you don't have any opportunity to fix anything. So um, on Earth or anywhere that's serviceable, you, if something goes wrong, you can uh, send a new part down, uh, get someone to fix it, um, resolder a wire that came loose or something like that. But up there, we obviously have no fixer robots ready to help us out or anything yet, and people have never been there. So everything has to be tested ad nauseum, and the quality control is extreme. So you have to make sure all your motors are rated for multiple times the amount of uh, torque they're ever going to need. Um, you have to make sure that it can go through more cycles of whatever you have to do, spinning around the carousel or getting rock samples, that it can do hundreds of, hundreds of times more um, operational cycles than it actually needs to. So, you know, if you know it can do, the goal is 100 and you test it to 300, you can be about three times more confident that it's going to work. So it was a great first job, actually, because I learned how to do everything the right way. <laughs> but it's also a lot of um, quality control and tolerances and paperwork and stuff like that to go through. But it makes sense because it would be very disappointing if it got up there and landed <laughs> and then could not function. <laughs> In contrast to the epic remoteness of her work on Curiosity, Justin's current focus is about as intimate as you can get, the human body. Basically studying how people move makes you feel very, um, makes you very humbled as a roboticist because <laughs> we have motors that rotate around one axis and that's how we make robotic joints for the most part. Um, but my elbow, although it looks like a hinge, can also do a little bit of this, can also kind of twist a little bit and we don't have any joints, robotic joints really, that mimic the functionality of human joints. And it turns out it's really, really hard to do. So, and then there's a whole school of thought on, you know, are we even optimal? Should we be trying to mimic our joints or is there better ways to do that? So um, there's a lot of work in the research atmosphere on prosthetics and robotic hands and trying to mimic our function. Learning how the human body works does inform that, but it doesn't make it easy. <laughs> I first got interested in biomechanics when I played volleyball in high school, actually. And um, our coach would talk about how to pull your arm back farther, to use your whole range of motion of your shoulder because you can generate more power if you can start rotating it farther back. And I didn't think much about it until I got into school and started taking robotics classes. And then we were doing things like uh, trying to plan a Lego robot path through a maze or make a Lego robot arm um, go from this point to point A to point B. And it was really difficult. There was a lot of trigonometry involved, and it was like, well, how do, how do we do that? I don't think about trigonometry when 
I go from here to here. So then I got to take a class called um, Biomechanics and Human Control. And I learned that all the sensors that we put on the robots, like the potentiometers and encoders and stretch sensors and things like that, we basically have biological versions of those in our body, in our muscles. So um, unless you spin me around and I'm playing pin the tail on the donkey, I can close my eyes and you know use my finger to touch something that I just saw a second ago without using the visual cues because my muscles know, okay, if I move from here to here, I stretched out you know six inches this way and four inches that way, and it does all the math automatically. So I got really interested in control and robotics and the overlaps there because we have such a hard time making even two or three rotational degree of freedoms in like a robotic arm on the rover, but we do it effortlessly and we have, I can move all over like this. And here she's wiggling her arms dancishly. Just to do that, to program that movement in a robot is nearly impossible right now. <laughs> the field of biomechanics has a ton of therapeutic potential for helping humans with less than optimal movement. Part of my research at NYU Poly um, as a PhD student, we're looking at how humans use uh, energy and we can, and also I'm looking at how robotic systems use energy. So if we had a good equation for how both those systems use energy, you could choose things like um, how to get from here to here or how to move from here to here while using the least amount of energy. And because we have all these degrees of freedom, like I can have my fingers right here, but my elbows and my shoulders can be in like, you know, almost infinite different positions. So in a robotic system, if you can minimize that, you can minimize electrical energy uh, cost, uh, extend battery life, uh, etc. But if you use, if you can figure out that same kind of equation for a human, and we know how much calories our muscles burn, and you give given a certain task, you could instruct someone to move a certain way that minimizes that. You could potentially help um, children with cerebral palsy walk without getting fatigued. You could help people re rehabilitate from injuries better. Or you could maximize that and help people lose weight and uh, uh, tackle our obesity demic we have. So it's a, kind of a basic science question. How do we use energy and also has applied engineering kind of applications. And Dustin is really creative about ways to make this technology accessible. One thing I want to work on is a DIY biomechanics lab, basically, because so I registered DIYBiomechanics.com last year and taught a biomechanics course at NYU ITP. And we ended up, um, I hadn't even used a Connect ever, a Microsoft Connect, but the students um, had them available there in the program to use and they got really into using those and the skeletonization algorithm that you can um, shine this camera basically at someone and you get all the points of their joints and you can track them through space. And we can't do that without $150,000 optical motion capture camera setup. <laughs> um, and there's just nothing in between, really. So um, it doesn't count as research for, for me, per se, because it's not you know cutting edge to do a DIY version of something we already have a commercial version of. But that's something that's been in the back of my head, trying to marry a bunch of different tools that we have commercially so I can give them to each of my students to be able to do their own work. For example, um, force plates are things that you can put in the floor and step on and the software that hooked up to it will tell you how hard you stepped on it or how fast your foot was moving when you hit it, basically. And we don't really have good DIY versions of that. The cheapest versions are thousands of dollars, which are totally out of range for me to use them for teaching and totally out of range for the students to afford for themselves. 
But we have things like Wii balance boards that can tell if you're stepping on them or not. So there's been some research and kind of hacking into those to use the sensors and benefit from the economy of scale they have from just selling thousands of them to you know gamers. And then marry that with the Microsoft Connect and then using open source um, sensors like that are called inertial measurement units that you can put um, little modules, you know, maybe uh, like Velcro bracelet kind of things around your body and then tell where your arm is relative to your leg or your trunk and then get all this data in so you can do kind of a poor man's motion analysis. And for a lot of physical therapy labs even that can't afford the 150,000 motion dollar uh, capture systems, this could be a really, really enabling, interesting thing, I think, for them, too. So not only as a teaching tool, but also as a, a clinical tool for evaluations when you can't get to the, you know, the one hospital in one state next to you that has the fancy, you know, gate analysis lab or something. So that's kind of brewing in the background. Besides being an impressive roboticist, Dustin is also a thoughtful and proactive member of the scientific community. As a female engineer, she's certainly in a minority demographic and she makes a special point of engaging with girls to help break down some of the stereotypes that can deter young women from careers in science. Is that a passion for you? Uh, yes, and I, so I read a study a few years ago from the Harvard Business Review article. They studied why women, um, the women that came into college with an engineering major chosen, why they left that major and or why they did not choose to pursue engineering after graduating. And they studied a lot of different factors like uh, economic background, uh, wealth of the family, um, GPA coming in, GPA leaving, things like that. And the only thing they found that correlated well was the percentage of female faculty members at their college. So it was, it's pretty clear, and there's been lots of studies since then that it's pretty clear that um, younger girls just don't have any role models. So without even necessarily internalizing it, if you, if you go to college and 100% of your professors are male, you don't, you don't necessarily have a feeling, oh, I can do that too. Um, and I had one very awesome female professor when I was at college, and I probably wouldn't be where I am now without her looking back. So I'm hoping just if I can get up in front of people and talk to middle school girls you know, a couple of times a year and be at maker fairs, et cetera, that they'll at least have a face to associate with engineering and say, oh, you know, it's normal for girls to do this. It's okay. You know, I, I, I've seen them. <laughs> That's awesome. Dustin is also very active in promoting open source hardware, which she sees as a tremendous educational opportunity. I just finished co-chairing something called the Open Hardware Summit. Open hardware is kind of an emerging practice and business model that deals with not patenting things and sharing all your design files online. And what that promotes is me learning as a mechanical engineer how to make my motors move. But basically, after undergraduate engineering, um, you learn that you're supposed to work with an electrical engineer to kind of get that stuff to work, and that's what I got to do at Honeybee. But doing projects on your own, I turned to something called an Arduino, which is a little microcontroller board that is open hardware. So all the, the code in the um, software environment is free. And the board is about $29, and you can make a motor spin and an LED blink, and um, you know there's 11-year-old kids that can do it on their own, and it's very easy to learn. And that board is open hardware, and that introduced me to um, just this concept of sharing what you do. And they, as a company, um, still have everything they do that's completely open. They, the only thing they have any kind of IP on is the trademark um, Arduino name, 
but everything else, all the design files are online. So I can look at the design files of the circuit of the board and see how they did it. I can go into the source code and see how they programmed it. And that's really enabling. We just launched um, the Open Source Hardware Association because there's uh, multi-million dollar companies now based on this open hardware business model of sharing everything and getting the community involved. And there wasn't really a good umbrella organization to kind of um, gather best practices, um, do frequently asked questions on how to deal with lawyers and legality issues and uh, that kind of thing. And they just opened up membership, so they're doing uh, fundraising and trying to get the community involved with that to promote that work. And most of my robotics work would not have been possible without me learning through the Open Harbor community. So, um, yeah, oshwa.org slash membership <laughs> is cool. awesome. That's O-S-H-W-A dot org. You should also check out Dustin's website, dustinrobots.com, for blog posts, project descriptions, articles, and more. And if you're feeling inspired to learn about engineering in a hands-on kind of way, NYC Resistor, where Dustin works in Brooklyn, offers regular classes, many of which offer a chance to use a laser cutter. If that piques your interest, and really, how can it not, go to nycresistor.com for more info. That's it for this Science in the City podcast. Science in the City is a not-for-profit program of the New York Academy of Sciences. Visit us online at scienceinthecity.org or email us at scienceinthecity at nyas.org. Thanks for listening.